Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Morning. You guys awake with me? We're here? We're good? Thank you for being here on uh, Sunday morning. I know that um, this is kind of life habit for a lot of us. But each Sunday that we choose to arise, come out of our homes, and worship God, it's a choice we make that honors Him and actually feeds into our hearts. So I want to thank you for being here. If you're joining us through live stream, if you're watching this later on video, I want to greet you as well. We're glad that technology makes it possible for you to join us. That passage that Jacob read, especially verse 6, is so often read at Christmas time. And if you don't mind, I'm going to just kind of, just to get the, like you guys are so spread out. It's kind of throwing me off. Um, It's read at Christmas time, but that's weird because those words that he just read for us were written by the prophet Isaiah, spoken by him first, and then written some 700 years before Jesus was born. And Isaiah prophesied in a really dark time in Israel's history. You know, we read these prophecies, these familiar words, and we get to even memorize them, but we don't always know what was going on in the actual world that occasioned the speaking of the words. So I want to give you a quick uh, context of what was happening in Isaiah's world when he spoke those words, because it was not a good day to be a Jew in Israel. At that time, Israel was a, a divided nation. And you may be already familiar with this, but after, after the King Solomon died, there was a civil war uh, around 200 years before Isaiah had written these words. And Israel remained a divided nation for all that time. Brother against brother, they never reconciled. And ten tribes together formed the northern kingdom that was called Israel. And then two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, formed the southern tribe, which is known as Judah. And they remained divided pretty much for the rest of their history. The kings of both countries, or both kingdoms, and the people of both kingdoms gradually slid further and further away from God, forfeiting his protection, his promises, his blessings, and things were a mess. And eventually, the Assyrian Empire rose up and invaded the northern kingdom of Israel in 733 B.C., They carried off many of those people into exile. One of the the tactics that the Assyrians used when they conquered a country is they didn't want to leave everyone alone so that they could eventually rise up, grow stronger, and rebel. So they would take a bunch of the people, often the best citizens of that conquered nation, and they would exile them all over the empire to intermarry and become part of the whole empire so that it would basically gut the country they'd conquered. Then they'd bring a bunch of other people from around the empire, move them in, and intermingle with them, trying to create one kind of generalized people under that empire. It was a way of erasing their national identity. And for the Jewish people, this was a huge threat to them because their national identity and their spiritual identity were really the same thing. After the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, Israel never recovered from this. They would remain that way until Jesus arrived on the scene 700 years later. The people in the southern kingdom, seeing what was happening to their brothers and sisters in the north, were understandably alarmed because they thought that as the people of God, the chosen ones, nothing bad could ever really happen to them. 
And what they saw was that when God withdraws his protection, all bets are off. And God raised Isaiah as a prophet to come to Judah and prophesy to them words of warning to turn back to God, to remain faithful to him, and to have his promises and his protection secure in their lives. At the end of chapter 8, which is right before what what, um, Jacob read for us, here is what Isaiah says. It's not a feel-good message. He says, look to God's instructions and teachings. People who contradict his word are completely in the dark. They will go from one place to another, weary and hungry. And because they are hungry, they will rage and curse their king and their God. They will look up to heaven and down at the earth, but wherever they look, there will be trouble and anguish and dark despair. They will be thrown out into the darkness. It's not a really feel-good message. It's not something you would hear preached in American churches today. But Isaiah pulls no punches. He delivers with clarity the bad news of a life spent in rebellion against the God that they knew. And this was a word delivered to Israel because they were God's people, and they were making choices not to be anymore. You know, I don't go around rebuking all women who are not by my side, but if my own wife, who is my own wife, departs from me, drifts away from me, I will have strong feelings and strong words to express to her because she's mine, because we belong to each other. And so there's a deeper pain, a sharper emotional profile when someone who already belongs to you turns their back on you. That's the strength and the sharpness of the words of this prophecy. This is not God's general attitude to all humanity saying, you were mine and you drifted away from me. The life I promised you was found with me, not apart from me. And so God calls them and he does it in a way that doesn't spare them the darkness and gloom of the bad news. And this is something I love about God is he never lies to us about the bad news. Never trust someone who only says good things, okay? Because the world is not full of good things only. It's important to say what is hard, and God never lies to us about the bad news. But as soon as he delivers that, and by the way, Judah really needed to just sit in the heaviness of this truth. It didn't feel good, but they needed to hear it and just sit in it for a time. But as soon as he delivers that bad news, in the very next chapter... He opens this way, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. God may never lie about the bad news, but he never leaves us wallowing there stuck forever. That's so important for us to understand because we will be in a similar position when we're in conflict, when others have wronged us, and there's this need to tell people exactly how they made you feel, what that did to you, to be angry, upset, all of that. But so often we deliver the bad news, but the question is, are we like God in the way that he always opens a door for reconciliation? He delivers the bad news without apology, without flinching, but he always follows it up. With good news. He makes a way forward, a way towards reconciliation. And he says, the darkness for those to depart from him is intense, but there is a way to return. I love the way that the New Living Translation puts it. Nevertheless, 
that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. Isaiah foretells that the reason that he can say those words is because one day a Savior will come. And he announces that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. In Matthew 4.16, Matthew makes it clear that these words were spoken about Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He quotes these very verses to to say, Jesus, who is now here, is that promised Savior. And so last week we learned about joy for the lost. If you are walking in the darkness of being lost to God, the darkness of your own sin, your own betrayals, your own failures, and those of others that have made your life a mess, if you're lost in the darkness of suffering and struggle... There is joy for those who are lost because when you turn towards God, you do not find someone with folded arms and a back turned, but you find one who is gentle and lowly. That's another way of saying tender and mild. You know that harmless sounding song called Silent Night that we sing? It speaks something so true about the nature of God, that he is tender and mild, and that's not what we expect from the almighty God who is rebelled against again and again. This God of ours is deeply committed to finding those who are lost to him. And when they finally come home, you remember those three stories last Sunday that Jesus told? They were meant to to highlight for us that when those who are lost to God find their way home to him, when they come home, there is great rejoicing and celebration in the heart of God. And so last week we saw that if you are lost, there's great joy to be found In the heart of God. Well, this morning, I want to look at the joy for those who are found. Isaiah says in verse 3 of this passage, You've enlarged the nation and increased their joy. Look at how many times the word joy or rejoice occurs. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. These are two really common. images for the ancient world. And the focus here is, think about the emotional feeling if you were in this situation. After a grinding season of working the fields, when finally all the crops come in. How many of you garden by any chance? Okay, so, I mean, I'm talking about gardening like stuff you're going to eat. Any of you? All right. I've never done it because I kill everything green that comes into my life. But I've always thought how cool it is that you could just dig a hole in your own yard and make food out of nothing. I mean, that's the coolest concept. So when you do it and the critters don't get it, and after the whole season of working, these crops come in, there's no, they're not um, diseased, they're whole, they're plump. It is a great feeling. I've got a good friend who's a pastor who, who now is constantly gardening, and he's sending me pictures all the time of his harvest. And you could tell just in the way he talks about it how happy it makes him to gather those vegetables and fruits. That's the joy he's talking about. It's the joy of soldiers who, after a crazy battle, are amazed to find they're still alive. If you've ever seen Lord of the Rings or any of those, those, um, those uh, ancient depictions of war, 
It's crazy. It's one thing to shoot at people with a gun from like hundreds of feet away, but ancient warfare was like right in your face. A guy's trying to hack you to pieces with an axe or a, or a sword. And if you survive that craziness, there's an elation that follows. You can hardly believe you made it. And on top of having survived against impossible odds, when you win, you walk through the battlefield and you pluck all the wealth, all the, the weapons and the shoes and the clothing, and you become wealthy on top of that. And for the ancient soldier, that was an incredible moment. The coupling of the great relief of surviving with now the plunder and the enriching of your pockets. The focus is on the joy. One of the great moments of joy in my life, obviously, aside from being married and watching my four kids get born, this is one of the greatest days of my life. It was 11 years ago when Elijah's football team won the Super Bowl of their league, and Elijah started defense and offense, and I got to watch that kid play the game of his life, and they won. And I, I still remember emotionally what I felt like that day as every kid hoisted their trophies, and those kids worked hard for that. And the point was not to, to emphasize the work, but just the, the joy, the feeling when you finally get to the championship and you win. Do you know the feeling we're talking about? Because as Isaiah is prophesying about the coming Savior, he's saying, when you really get to understand who he is and what he's going to do for us, that's the feeling you will have. You will recognize your understanding of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, when that emotion fills your heart. The gospel cannot be truly received in a state of numbness and calmness and, and remove. It's a joyful gleeful message. And anyone who understands what it really is will have that response to him and to what he's done. And just to make it clear, the joy is not over anything we did. This is the greatest joy. He says in verse 4, you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. That is, of course, um, a reference to when Gideon defeated the Midianites with 300 soldiers. He was the original 300, right? Not, not the Greeks um, under Leonidas. But Gideon with 300 soldiers defeats a massive army of enemy, and it became one of the greatest moments in Israel's history. And he points to that day and says, that day there's no way any, any thinking sane person would credit Gideon and his 300 soldiers with that victory. You can't look at 300 versus tens of thousands and say, those guys are good fighters. It had nothing to do with fighting skill. That was 100% the deliverance of God. Sure, they had to swing their swords. They did their part. But that victory belonged fully to God. There's no way to explain it by the human contribution. And the point of that is, he's saying, this joy we feel is not the joy of a hard-earned victory but it is the joy of receiving a gift that you did not have to work for. Something so great you would have longed for it, but you didn't have to do a thing to get it. It's the, it's the, the, the joy of knowing you are so loved, somebody gave you something unimaginably valuable. It's such a small thing, but um, last month or a couple months ago when, when we observed uh, Pastor's Appreciation, you guys put together those cool bags full of gifts for the staff. There were so many nice items in there, but there was one item in particular that so touched my heart. It was an 8.5 by 11 Moleskine watercolor sketchbook. 
And that's one of those sketchbooks that as a budding artist, I've gone to the store, stared at it probably a dozen times thinking, oh man, I wish I could get that. And I see the price tag, I go, yeah, I'm not there yet. And I kept looking at it, thinking about it, walking away, and I found that sketchbook. I never told a soul about it. That's the sketchbook that was in the bag, and I almost fainted. I couldn't believe it. Something I'd never buy for myself, and someone gave it to me. I'm still too scared to draw a picture in it. I'm working up the nerve. But the point is, it's the joy of receiving something which you did not pay for, which you did not work for. And, and it's not just that you got something free. It's not like loot. It's just knowing someone loved you that much that they gave you a thing which is so treasured, but you did not have to earn. This is the gospel of Jesus. At its heart, it's a story of an undeserved gift. And Isaiah says in this familiar verse, in verse 6, for to us... A child is born. I don't know why I don't have that, that slide in there. But, but listen to the emphasis. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The emphasis is this. We did not go out and get this. It was given as a gift to us. Twice Isaiah repeats it. This is God's gift to you. A savior whom you could not have summoned, who you could not have demanded, has been sent and given to you. Jesus Christ is the gift of God to a lost humanity. It is proof from God's heart of how much he loves us. He carries us where we cannot walk. He gives us what we cannot earn. And at the end of that passage, he says, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Saying you don't have to save yourselves. It's not even possible to do. But God's zeal will accomplish all of this. Again, the New Living Translation offers a very interesting translation. It says, God's passionate commitment will make this happen. So this is the joy for those who are found in Jesus, is that we receive in him a freedom, a gift, a salvation, which we will treasure with all joy if we understand it, but we could not have demanded or earned, and it's given to us freely. It's given freely in a way that God says to us, You have no idea yet just how much you are loved. Now, having laid that foundation of why the good news of Jesus is a cause for such joy, consider this. When you are found in Jesus, you receive him, you acknowledge that gospel, you align with him. What are the gifts that continue to be given? What is the joy for those who are found And now walking with Jesus. I was astounded to learn that if you include things like the Cold War, where there were state-sponsored conflicts elsewhere, the United States has been in some form of state-sponsored armed conflict for 90% of our history. That's insane to me. If you ever wonder why we're such an angry nation, we're constantly at war. For 90% of the, the years that we have been a nation... We've been fighting someone with guns or swords. At least 1.1 million Americans have died at war. And some 400,000 of them are buried on the 640 acres of Arlington National Cemetery in Virginia. I don't know if you've ever visited that cemetery, but it's like this massive orchard of graves. It's a testament to how many Americans have died 
really unnecessarily fighting wars because war is life. And we don't need the cemetery to remind us of something we all know is true. Isn't life just, does it ever feel to you like a constant fight? You fight for everything. It's conflict everywhere. There might be a couple days, just like in U.S. history, there have been lulls for a few years. In like the 70s and 80s, there were a small period where we weren't at war somewhere. That's when I was in high school and it's when I grew up, so maybe that's why I'm so happy all the time. But there are a few short periods in your life where everything is great, but you just know in your heart it's not going to last, right? Because life is a battle. There's always fighting. The minute you turn your back, someone's after you, and it just feels like that. Conflict is an inescapable part of life in a broken world. And even though some of us really like a good fight, can we just admit that fighting all the time is so draining? Aren't you tired of conflict? Don't you long for a world where people stop fighting all the time? I personally am so sick of the fighting. I'm so weary of it. Everyone's so angry. And I long for a time when that doesn't have to be how life is. Isaiah promises, he prophesies about this, that with the arrival of the Savior, real peace will actually enter the earth. He says that every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. What he's saying is all the implements of war will one day no longer be needed. Their only value will be as fuel for fires. When the angel appeared to the shepherds on that first Christmas, one of the last things he said to them was glory to God and peace on earth. The angel said that with the arrival of Jesus, peace for the first time in any meaningful way would enter the human experience. That doesn't mean all wars and all conflict ended when Jesus was born, but what it means is that a real pathway towards peace becomes possible, and it only becomes possible through Jesus. Human beings have tried for millennia to achieve some manner of lasting peace among us, but we haven't succeeded in doing it because we're not capable of raising up real and lasting peace in this broken world because we are the reasons it's broken. The reason peace is shattered is not other people, it's us. And because we're responsible, we cannot be the solution. Conflict costs so much. We long for peace, we try to work for peace, but we don't know how to make it happen. And the angel says to these shepherds, today, on this day, as this baby is born, real peace is going to enter upon the earth for the first time. The world's way of getting peace comes in one of two ways. Through conquest, where we say, I will crush you until you have no choice but to make peace with me. Or they do it through concession. I'm just going to submit to you if that's the only way we're going to get peace. Do you realize that's the way most of us try to achieve peace in our lives? We either try to fight and crush, or we just succeed, concede and submit ourselves. And either way, you're only making a temporary truce, aren't you? Because if you have to get peace in your life through crushing someone or to crush yourself, how long will that last before you start to really chafe over that? 
God's way of establishing peace is not through conquest or concession. It's through communion, through the redemption, the wholeness of a life in communion with God. He doesn't just change our posture or our attitude or our fight. He changes us somewhere deep down. And he opens a way for real peace to be found, not just because we're becoming better people, but through him in particular. I shared this illustration in a message near the beginning of this year. I'm going to share it again because it's, to me, one of the greatest illustrations of this principle. In the midst of the fierce trench warfare of World War I, on Christmas Day, 1914, as the British troops and the German troops were separated only by 100 yards, and the fighting was so fierce, the space in between them was littered with the dead. And on that Christmas, both sides heard their enemy singing the same Christmas songs in another language. And it was that moment that they instantly recognized that enemy they had objectified and demonized as less than human were actually young men just like themselves, with families they missed back home, maybe with a a gal waiting for them when they returned, if they returned. And they were singing the same songs to the same Savior And hearing that did something on that battlefield. And these soldiers, one by one, poked up their heads. And if you know anything about World War I's trench warfare, to poke up your head was to get it shot off. I commend the first soldier who poked his head up. And as they began to cross that battlefield, they actually met in the middle, exchanged names, shook hands. In some cases, they exchanged small gifts like lighters or cans of meat. Legend says they even played a short soccer game. Of course, because they were in the middle of a war and it wasn't up to them whether they fought or not, the next day the fighting resumed. But for that moment, in that truce, we got a glimpse of the kind of peace Jesus can bring about. Because they did not stop fighting because they forgave each other or because they were bigger people for a moment. It was because in that singing of the same Christmas songs to the same Christ, They found in him a bridge to cross to each other. A shared experience, a shared salvation, a shared humanity, which they could finally say, because of that, I can look at you differently than our conflict makes me think about you. When I think about just you, all I see is the memories, the echoes of everything you did and said to me. But when I see that you know the same Jesus and that same Jesus loves you and knows you, it changes the way I interact with you. This is God's way of bringing peace. It's not through the crushing force of power. It's through communion with him, which leads to communion with one another. By what power does God bring this peace to the world? It's a fair question. Well, a hint is given to us in the way that he enters the world. He enters, if I were God, I would have entered as this incredible looking, you know, like massive dude, muscles ripped, all kinds of guns and weapons. And I say, you guys are in trouble. You know, when you say, oh, wait till your daddy gets home and your dad comes home, it's like, oh man, I'm going to get it because that's the feeling, right? When the one and greatest authority comes to, the, the, comes to you, you expect might and power, but God arrives on the earth in the form of a human infant. Can I just ask you, what is more powerless on this planet than a human infant? 
I'm not talking about just infants in general. Every other species is stronger than us. Have you ever watched baby animals? They like pop out of the mom, little baby horse, gunk all over them, and they just get up and they start walking. Like, how, how does that happen? Other animals, other species at newborn. Think about the baby turtle. It's hatched, and the minute it's hatched and it pops into the world, it's in a mad dash for the sea, life or death. If it doesn't make it to the water, it dies. And on top of all that, seagulls are flying all over trying to pick them off and eat them. That's the way a baby turtle begins its existence. What about a human infant? If you don't tend to it, it dies almost right away. We're so helpless when we're born. We can't do anything for ourselves. We need someone to feed us, to clean us, to care for us. And that lasts for months and months and months. We don't even walk for nearly a year. And it is in this helpless form that God enters the world to begin his work of bringing peace and reconciliation to a world on fire. It's important to note this because there is a brand of Christianity that is gaining force today that is very militaristic and aggressive. And I understand where that militant spirit comes from because it can be frustrating trying to be a Christian in the world today. We have to remember that our Savior came preaching, turn the other cheek. That's one of the hardest things for me to accept from him. He preaches not fight fire with fire, but the meek shall inherit the earth. If we want to bring peace to the world in the same way that Jesus did, we can't do it in ways different and foreign to the way he brought peace. Jesus won a war against sin and death, and the only blood he spilled was his own. He brings peace, not by conquering his enemies or submitting to them, but by making his enemies his brothers. He brings peace on the earth by turning us into brother and sister to one another. And I know that it's possible to hate your brother, but it's a lot harder when you realize just how much your father loves your brother and your sister. It's harder to hate someone whom your Savior deeply loves. This has been the journey of my entire Christian life, learning how to understand this about the heart of God and to live it out. And I have to admit to you, it hasn't always been easy. There are days when I just want to rage. How about you? Am I I the only weak Christian in this room? You guys are looking at me like, what a bad Christian. Look, Look, we all have those days where you just, you want to stop fighting, you just want to give up on people, or you just want to flame them and walk away. Drop the mic. The way that Jesus brought peace was not through might or surrender, but he turned his enemies into his family. That's the great gift that Jesus makes possible for those of us who are found, is that we've yearned for peace and we didn't know how to find it. And through Jesus, a way opens up for us to actually have peace with one another. Let me bring things to a close this way, with a a second gift. This is the last gift I'll talk about. He gives us the gift of peace, but he also gives us the gift of purpose. In the same year that Jesus was born, 
Caesar Augustus, also called Octavian, was emperor of Rome. At that time, he was arguably the most powerful human being on the planet, and he had coins minted and circulated through the empire with his face and the inscription, Caesar Dio Filiae. That means Caesar, son of God. I think that's kind of interesting that in the same year that the true son of God is born, there's a powerful emperor who calls himself the son of God. And that's not unique to Caesar Augustus. For years and years, for most of human history, when there have been kings, they have given themselves divine status. Many, many kings said, we are not just people who are leaders, we are gods ourselves. And yet, despite all their huge claims, none of these leaders has ever proven to be divine. They are far from perfect. As a matter of fact, no matter what they promise, every human leader in the history of the world has eventually become a kind of disappointment at some level. I'm keenly aware that I am a leader in some fashion, and I am also keenly aware that I am a disappointment to so many people. I don't think there's ever been a leader on this earth who hasn't proven at some level to be a disappointment to someone. And part of the reason is because every leader is made of the same clay as the rest of the people. That's why it's so scary when one person, one leader, takes on great power. In an age of abuse, we are understandably very nervous about authority invested in one person. We should be. And yet, we also long for a leader who is worthy of that kind of authority. Because we recognize that the world is a mess, we're a mess, everything's a mess, and it takes leadership to fix that. We will never all just agree on one good day to be good people. It doesn't happen. You can't get people on their own as a mob to agree to anything productive. Without leadership, we are just a herd. That's the story of humanity. So we know that someone needs to lead us. We know that we need someone with authority. But it scares us to death when someone has that authority because all our lives we've seen abuse after abuse, disappointment after disappointment. Then Isaiah says to us in this prophecy, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. I remember as a teenager reading that thinking, what does that mean? What a weird word. The government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's a way of saying he will be a leader and he will be wise, he will be powerful, he will be loving, and he will bring peace. Everything we long for in a leader but we've never really seen in any lasting and perfect way. Isaiah prophesies that Jesus, the Messiah, would be a leader, but he would never hold political office. He would never sit on an earthly throne, but he would be the king of kings. And in fact, Isaiah's prophecy has come true. This carpenter's son from Nazareth has led more human beings than any other leader in the history of humanity. Just before he ascended into heaven, Jesus gathered his disciples and he said these words to them. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
spoken from anyone else, those words would give me a lot of, of caution, a lot of fear. I don't want all authority in heaven and on earth to be given to any one person. Because I've never seen any person use their power and authority perfectly. Eventually, they will use it to serve themselves and the ones they're close to. Eventually, they will, they will be self-seeking. They will have some sinful intention, and their power will enable them to do that at the expense of someone else. I have yet to see a leader differ from that pattern. And yet Jesus boldly speaks these words about himself. He says, listen, I'm about to leave you now, but all authority has been given to me. How do we reconcile our fear of authority with Jesus' claim that he has all authority? Well, I think one way we do that is by observing the way that Jesus used power every day that he was on the earth. He never used his power once for selfish gain or evil intent. He never once abused his power. In every case that he exercised his power, he glorified God and served humanity. Not one recorded instance of an abuse of power. I read there are some gospels that are not included in the Bible that were circulating in the early church. Um, the, I would say the spiritual equivalent of Harlequin romance novels. I'm sorry if you're a fan of those, but not serious literature. But they were circulating, telling stories about Jesus. And one of them says that Jesus, when he was a kid, got mad at another kid because he took his toy. So he, he had some toy clay figures or wooden figures, and he turned the lion into a real lion that came and ate the kid. I'm like, that's, that's how we would be if we had Jesus' power. I know I would have made lions eat my enemies when I was a kid. That's never the way Jesus used his power. Go through, by the way, we're going to start our 2022 Bible reading campaign soon. You're going to have a number of options. I challenge you to read the New Testament, especially the Gospels next year, with a careful eye to the way that Jesus uses power. When he exercises his authority, how does he do it? No other leader in the history of the human race can make that claim. They never, ever abused authority. Every leader cuts corners. And Isaiah adds that of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. When Jesus arrives, he doesn't arrive only to serve us. He comes to lead us. And he comes to lead us with all authority on heaven and on earth. And that's a gift to us because when we come under the authority of a worthy leader, that leader gives our lives a purpose. I want you to know how important purpose is to human existence. You can give a human being all levels of comfort and luxury, but if you don't give them purpose, they die inside. One of the most existential crises a person can experience is to face every day of life with no purpose. The gift of a worthy leader is that that leader gives purpose to our existence. And you can live for a lot of things and follow a lot of leaders, but Isaiah's prophecy makes clear only one kingdom and only one leader will be forever. 
Let me wrap up this way. Don't underestimate the power and value of receiving your purpose through the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He invites you to join him and live the life that you're supposed to live and to build the world you long to live in, to establish with him a kingdom that will last forever. That doesn't mean everything we do will never change. It means that this this work we're beginning with Jesus, living out our faith in this real world, is the work that we will be at for the rest of eternity. That what heaven and earth, when it's remade, will look like, we're participating in right now. We're beginning that journey with him. I want you to imagine that I offered you a job with a $3 million a year salary and a corner office. You're going to have an expense account, a huge staff, a company car. You're going to come to work every day for 10 hours, sit in a chair, but don't worry, you don't have to do anything. Just sit there. For like the first three weeks, that's heaven on earth, isn't it? Oh my gosh, I can't believe my luck. But come week four, you'll be sitting for 10 hours in that chair going, I don't care how much money I make, how nice this office is. I can't do this another day. I can't just sit here and exist. I don't care how comfortable it is. Substituting purpose with comfort and status and luxury doesn't work because God didn't make us for happiness and comfort alone. He created us for a purpose, and it's a purpose that brings honor to him. It's a purpose worthy of a human existence. This is the gift that Jesus offers as he invites us to build his kingdom. And what if you did have a purpose? But what if after working so hard every day when you were done, everything you did reset itself and you were back to square one with each new day. Do you remember that movie Groundhog Day? That's a depiction of hell in a way. Same thing over and over, every day, a momentary elation as you feel like you're making progress only to find at the end it goes away. The Greeks conceived of hell by telling the story of Sisyphus whose curse forever was to push a large boulder up a steep hill, and when he got near the top, he'd have to let go, and this thing would roll all the way back down. And this is a picture of futility and frustration, that you could labor every day, make progress, win, only to start from scratch again because it doesn't last. Do you know the pain of giving yourself to something that is temporary? The gift of Jesus is to call us into a purpose that will actually last forever. This work we do with him and for him will not be erased. It will not be undone. It will echo forever. It will still be visible to the end of time. I don't know about you, but I don't want to spend my life rolling a boulder up a hill and then letting it go back down again. And no matter how much you accomplish in this life, only one kingdom will last forever. Only one work will be eternal. 
You know, too often being a Christian is described in negative terms, in the language of burden and restriction and obligation and guilt. But to be a follower of Jesus is a great gift and privilege. Because of Jesus, I've actually experienced in my life real peace inside myself and with other people when I believe truly in my heart it would have been impossible apart from Him. I've been a part of reconciliations I couldn't dream would ever take place. People who once were my sworn enemy have become my brothers and sisters. And I have this privilege vocationally, but even when I'm not being a pastor, I have this privilege of knowing a savior, a leader, who orders my life in a way that the things I do will echo in eternity. No other leader can offer me that. And so if you are found in Jesus, know that the joy is not just at the moment that he finds you, but having been found, there's a great joy that lasts forever. Real peace. A real purpose. The writer of Ecclesiastes says that God has deposited eternity into the human heart. And only this kingdom which lasts forever is big enough to justify the devotion of an entire human life. He's put eternity in us and only eternity will satisfy. I've said enough. I want to just pause for, for a moment now and encourage you. Sit quietly with me and invite God to speak to you where you are at this moment. If you've been drifting slowly towards God, but you haven't reached a point of decision, it's my prayer that today you will see in Jesus the only person who has ever been worthy to have that kind of authority and receive that kind of trust from you. If you've been slowly drifting away from Him, pray that today he will grab hold of you remind you what joy and privilege it is to know the Savior so would you bow with me and in this moment just let him speak to your heart let's pray together God, I believe in this moment you've spoken to some of us. You've begun the work of stirring our hearts. Keep after us, God, until you've laid claim to our whole lives. God, you alone are worthy of this level of trust. We submit to you willingly because you will lead us to something that lasts forever. I pray for each person in this room that you will reveal yourself to us. Call us into a life of 
building this everlasting kingdom with you. Forbid that we should waste our lives on things that don't last forever. Jesus, come and be our peace and then come and be our purpose. Each time we forgive someone, repay a debt, show kindness, do justice, we build your eternal kingdom. So call us now, each one, to receive that gift from you and to give our whole lives, the best of our years, to this great work. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.